This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you live and in studio for the first time in seven weeks. I've been on, on the road. Did three shows over sitting in my car and waiting to go to a Coug game in the parking garage and down in Denver at my daughter's for our shared birthday in Las Vegas. And been kind of an interesting six weeks, so it's good to be sitting here behind the microphone. So let's start out with today's week's weekly wrap. It was, generally speaking, a strong week for the stock market. Mega cap stocks, which have been looked at for so long as highly robust, fell off sharply as earnings news roiled in this week. Apple was a rare exception among the tech giants, trading up after reporting quarterly results. Meta, or Facebook, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon all suffered heavy losses on the heels of their respective earnings reports. The struggling mega stocks didn't weigh as hard on the broader market as one might expect. A pack of blue chip companies provided a welcome distraction with good earnings news and guidance. Honeywell and Caterpillar were two of the biggest beneficiaries of this rotation out of the mega cap stocks. Interested names like Caterpillar and Honeywell led the S&P 500 industrial sector to close with the biggest weekly gain up 6.7%. Other top performing sectors this week included utilities up 6.5%, financials up 62 and real estate up 6.2%. Meanwhile, the losses incurred by Meta Platforms and Alphabet drove the communication services sector to close down 2.9% for the week. It's the only sector to end the week with a loss. Another top laggard was the consumer discretionary sector, which was up 7 tenths of 1%. The remaining six sectors all closed with gains of at least 2.8%. And small cap stocks were a specific pocket of strength this week. The Russell 2000 gained 6%, which was more than three, more than the three major averages. Other notable movements, movers included the Chinese stocks and U.S. stocks with high exposure to the Chinese market which sold off sharply for the first half of the week. This followed President Xi Jinping's securing an unprecedented third five-year term to serve as China's leader. That wasn't surprising, but it did come as a shock to many investors that he managed to surround himself only with loyalists who were apt to help him pursue tighter regulations and the continuation of China's zero-COVID policy. JD.com and Pindudu were losing standouts for Chinese stocks, while Las Vegas Sands and Starbucks also suffered heavy selling on concerns related to Zai's power grab. By the end of the week, however, these names were able to reclaim some of their losses. There's a growing belief among market participants that the Fed will soften its approach after the November meeting. The policy move from the Bank of Canada this week further fueled this notion. 
The Bank of Canada raised its key policy rate by 50 basis points. That would be a half a percent versus an expected 75 basis points or three quarters of a percent. The ECB, or European Central Bank, however, delivered a 75 basis point increase for its key policy rates as expected. Market participants digested a slew of economic data this week that both supported and undermined the notion that the Fed will soften its approach soon. Some of the data releases included September personal income up four-tenths of one percent, September personal spending up six-tenths of one percent, September PNCE prices up three-tenths of one percent, and uh, core prices for PCE up a half a percent. The key takeaway from the report is that the continued income growth and slightly hotter than expected core PCE price growth, the Fed has an argument to maintain its aggressive rate hike course. Weekly initial claims of 217,000, continuing claims of 1,438,000. The key takeaway from the labor report is that initial claims data suggests the labor market continues to hold up well, which of course is something that will continue to draw the Fed's attention. We also saw the third quarter GDP advance at 2.6% and the third quarter chain deflator advance at 4.1%. And the key takeaway from the report is it ends a two-quarter streak of negative GDP uh, prints. It also suggests the economy held up well in the third quarter as it started to acclimate to rising interest rates. Real final sales of domestic product, which excludes the change in private inventories, increased a solid 3.3%. And the October consumer confidence at 102.5, prior was revised from 107 to 107.8 from 100.8. The key takeaway from the report is the consumer's concern about inflation picked up again in October on the back of rising gas and food prices. And falling treasury yields were a big support factor in the stock market. Ten-year notes yield dipped below 4%, but only settled down the week 20 20 basis points down at 4.01%. The two-year note, or yield, fell nine basis points to 4.42%. In other news, Rishi Sunak was elected United Kingdom Prime Minister. <coughs> so, looking at the week's uh, end-of-the-week summary, year-to-date, the Dow Jones National Average is down 9.6%. The NASDAQ is down 29%. The S&P 500 is still down 18.2%. And the Russell 2000 is down 17.7%. And talking about rates and what's happening, let's talk a little bit about how the bond market has has fared since August 4th of 2020. Why do we take that uh, August 4th date? Because that's when the yield in the 10-year Treasury note, or T-note, closed at an all-time low of 0.51%. So from August 4th through October 25th, the yield rose from 0.51% to 4.1%, or an increase of 359 basis points, or 3.59%, based on the close of trading. The only debt category in positive territory for the period was leveraged loans, or senior loans, which are floating rates, uh, speculative-grade uh, securities. Emerging market bonds, intermediate-term global bonds, were deep in negative territory for the period. The strength of U.S. dollar definitely had a negative impact on performance of foreign bonds. The U.S. dollar index rose by 18.82% over this time. Inflation remains elevated. The trailing 12-month consumer price index stood at 8.2% in September, up from 1.3% in August of 20. The CPI is at a level not seen since 
excuse me, not seen since 1982, according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And as of October 25th, the federal funds target rate or upper bound stood at three and a quarter percent, up from a quarter percent this past March. The federal fund is Federal Reserve has signaled via its dot plots that it's prepared to raise rates another 75 basis points in its next meeting scheduled for November 1st and 2nd. As always, investors are likely to be listening closely for the Fed's thoughts on where rates are headed. Its last meeting of the year is scheduled for December 13th and 14th. And for comparative purposes, the federal fund's target rate averaged 2.46% for the further year period ending October 25th, but did climb as high as 6.5% back in May of 2000. Stay tuned. So looking at some of these rates, we're seeing that the global government index is down almost 30% for the year. Seven to 10-year treasuries are down 21%. U.S. corporates are down about 19%. Um, Fedi Mac mortgages are down about 17%. In other words, these are bonds that people could be buying. So sometimes, of course, we like to think we can run to the bond market when the market goes down. Not this time. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. Hi, I'm Steve, co-host of In the Shop, Saturdays from 9 to 10 on KGMI 790. I own Panacea Automotive Repair. Did you know that the definition of panacea is a remedy for all ills or difficulties, a cure-all? At Panacea, honesty is our priority. We won't sell you products you don't need or do repairs that aren't necessary. We understand the necessity of a good working relationship, so we take pride in giving our clients quality service. Panacea Auto Repair, service you can trust on Britain Road behind Iron Man Movers or at PanaceaAuto.com. Hi, I'm Dan Johnson, running for state representative. With increased crime, the cost of living, and students falling behind, our state is heading in the wrong direction. This November, you decide where we go from here. As your next state representative, I will fix these issues. Instead of defunding police and releasing dangerous criminals from prison, I will support law enforcement and give them back the tools they need to keep dangerous criminals off the street. Rather than add more taxes that increase the cost of living, I'll vote to cut property taxes, sales tax, and the gas tax. If you hear this and think, I could sure use a break right now, I'm right there with you because you won't get this from my opponent. My opponent works directly for Governor Jay Inslee. We can't afford another two years of more anti-police laws, higher gas taxes, and more fees that add to the cost of living. If you want something different out of Olympia, you need someone who will vote differently in Olympia. I'm Dan Johnson, and I would be honored to be your next state representative. Paid for by Vote Dan Johnson. COVID-19 has tested our communities in unthinkable ways. In the face of crisis, Puget Sound Energy has given over 18 million in bill assistance to customers impacted by the pandemic, and together with PSE Foundation, gave 4 million in community grants for COVID relief. All the while, PSE continues to lead on clean energy, with a goal to reach beyond net zero carbon emissions by 2045. It's part of our commitment to doing what's right for customers and communities. Together, we're creating a clean energy future for all. Learn more at psc.com slash together. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live, Dick Donahue live and in studio today. We're Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway. That's out in the Pacific Commerce Center, about halfway out to Ferndale on your right, next to Wilson's Furniture. 
Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway Suite 101, Ferndale 98248. Our phone number 360-733-1200. And check out our website, wealthwakeup.com. Okay, I'm getting calls from clients and others today asking me what I think they should do about I-bonds. And I'm going to spend a second here talking about them because I think it's something to think about. But um, we'll talk a little bit about the limitation that you have. You can only buy $10,000 per tax ID numbers. But um, basically, the sleeper is about maybe to lose some of its luster. But it still might be one of the best places to store some of your cash. Uh, the rate on U.S. Series I bonds is estimated to drop to 6.47% beginning uh, next Tuesday, down from a record high of 9.62% currently. That's because the yield is linked to the change in inflation over a six-month period from March to September, which slowed from the period's uh, uh, prior stretch despite core inflation notching new highs. So even with the lower yield, I-bonds are still an appealing option for investors looking for a place to store cash that they won't need in the immediate future, especially compared to still low rates on high-yield savings accounts and certificates of deposits. You know, there's nothing really comparable right now from the standpoint of return, and it's really a solid investment with inflation so high for that short-term money. There's one catch. Each individual can technically only purchase up to $10,000 in I-bonds during a calendar year. But there are a few workarounds that experts recommend. Number one, act quickly because this has to be done before next Tuesday if you want to take advantage of this current rate. Bonds purchased between now and the end of October will receive 9.62% for the next six months. After that, bonds will assume the rate set November 1st for the next six months. So you can assume 9.62% for six months. It might be that 6.5% rate after that. We'll have to see what happens. And since inflation is edging lower, the best time to purchase bonds basically is right now. We know the, fu- <coughs> we know the Fed is really focused on curbing inflation. And so that's why we think we'll see those interest rates maybe slow down. So there's some ideas here. You can use your tax refund. Each, although each individual can only purchase 10000 in I-bonds each year, there's a loophole. Those who use their federal income tax refunds can buy an additional 5000 bringing that total up to 15000 But in order to make the strategy work, you must be receiving a refund, not owe money when you're filing. And when you file your tax return, you can tell the IRS that you want to use part or all of your refund to purchase I-bonds by filling out Form 8888. That's Form 8888. Then the agency will mail you the paper bonds, which could take a bit of time considering the current backlog at the IRS. The Treasury Direct website, which is where you go to buy these because you're going to go there and buy it online at Treasury Direct, known for being slow and wonky, allows users to convert their paper bonds into electronic securities. You can buy for others. The humble I-bond can be a gift that keeps on giving because the $10,000 limit applies only to each individual with a tax ID. Adults can purchase I-bonds in their children's names. You just need to use a separate Social Security number. That means married couples can buy $20,000. A family of four can invest $40,000. For minors, you can open a custodial account on Treasury Direct that's linked to the parent's account. There's also an option to invest via a business. <coughs> Pardon my cold today. 
uh, using an employer ID number. This applies to trusts and corporations and LLCs as well. <coughs> and many people have trusts and LLCs that they, they, effectively have 100% of control. So these entities can be a great way to increase over that $10,000 limit. There's also cash options. Assume that buying an I-bond is the right move for your financial goals. Caution against putting too much cash into the bonds, which must be held for a minimum of one year. Cashing in them for five years means forfeiting interest from the previous three months. <coughs> you can't just buy them now for six months think you're going to get rid of them. You're going to hold them for a year. <coughs> Excuse me. And if you cash them in before... Uh, after that, you're still going to have it's less than five years. You're going to forfeit three months' interest. So make sure you're thinking about this in the grand scheme of things. Still keeping enough emergency fund and liquid cash. You don't want to short yourself there. So that's something for you to think about. <coughs> Use me today. Um, also saw a report come out talking about inflation, where it's highest in the country. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics recently reported <coughs> that the consumer price index rose 8.2% in September compared with the year before. And the national average hides the fact that prices are rising higher and faster in certain parts of the country. Breaking the country into subregions, using the Census Bureau, uh, used by the Census Bureau, the rate of price increase that consumers pay for goods ranged from 7.2% in the Northeast to 9.6% in the mountain states. More local measures uh, show an even greater range from 5.7% in San Francisco to over 13% in metropolitan Phoenix. So to give you an example, the West as a whole, which includes the Pacific and mountain area, had an 8.3% increase, but the Pacific region was about 7.7%. The mountain area is 96 Then the Midwest, which includes the West North Central, which is your Dakotas and down into Nebraska, et cetera, seven and a half. And your East Central up around the Great Lakes is about 8.4. Now, your West South Central, which is Texas and, and Oklahoma and Louisiana, 9.1. And then you had your South as a whole was at 8.7%. New England or Northeast part of the world was about 7.2. New England, 7.4. Mid-Atlantic, about 7.2. The South Atlantic area about 8.8. So you're seeing quite a variation in, in, in um, rate of inflation around the country. Food, energy, and transportation are some of the uh, fastest growing categories. Transportation costs are up across the country, which increases around 13% in metropolitan areas with both the highest and lowest overall inflation rates. The increase in food and beverage costs vary slightly among locations. Nationally, housing costs seem to be growing at moderate rates, obscuring the housing costs are growing quickly in some areas and slowly in others as Americans reshuffle where they live. And the housing comprises of more than 40% of the consumer price index. Changes in rents and home prices can have a substantial impact on inflation. The cities and states with the fastest increase in housing costs also tend to have the highest inflation rates. So housing costs grew by 17.1% in Phoenix, 12.8% in Atlanta, 13.5% in Miami. Meanwhile, housing costs rose only 3.5% in San Francisco, 4.9% in New York, 5.9% in metropolitan Washington. And housing costs include both shelter and fuels and utilities. So looking at, so 
<coughs> some of the major regions across the country. Phoenix, Mesa, Scottsdale, Arizona, up about 13%. Atlanta, Sandy Springs, Roswell, Georgia, up about 11 Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach, up about 10.7. Tampa Bay, St. Petersburg, Florida, up 10.5. Baltimore area, up about 10. Houston area, up about 9.5. Seattle area is up about 9. Going on down here, Long, Los Angeles, Long Beach, Anaheim, California, is uh, up about 7.8. The Denver, Aurora, Lakewood, Colorado area, about 7.7. St. Louis is up 7.5. Urban Hawaii, for example, is up 6.6%. And the San Francisco, Oakland, Hayward, California area is up about 5.7%. And housing costs are rising because of shrinking supply or growing demand in areas of strict zoning and open space laws of restricted supply of housing, which puts upward pressure on prices. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here in KGMI. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break. Thank you for being with us. No doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning here in studio. Well, we saw a new study come out here that says Americans now believe that they need about one and a quarter million dollars in order to retire. Americans anticipate the cost of retirement keeps going up. Many people believing that they need that one and a quarter million dollars for their golden years. At the same time, the report found the average retirement savings has dropped about 11% from $98,800 last year to $86,869. In 2020, it was $87,500. It's a period of uncertainty for many people, driven largely by rising inflation and volatility in the markets. The report found that Americans are not feeling optimistic about retirement readiness. 43% said that they do not expect to be financially ready for retirement when the time comes. 45% are not banking on Social Security always being around. The report also found that Americans extend their working years from 64 to 64 from 62.6 last year, and the one-third expect to live to 100, with a third predicting that there is a 50% chance that they'll outlive their savings. Even so, the report found that 36% have not proactively addressed the possibility of outliving their savings. Respondents, the report found, are expecting their 401k to be about 27% in, of their retirement, followed closely by Social Security at 26% and personal savings investments about 22%. The report found that the pandemic has impacted people's retirement timeliness as a quarter of Americans said they plan to retire later than they had anticipated, and 15% said they plan to retire earlier. 59% of those who have delayed retirement cite working and saving more given the additional flexibility from remote work. 45% said that they're concerned about rising health care and medical costs. 26% said that they had to dip into their savings. 24% said that they're taking care of a relative or a friend. And 18% said they lost their job during the pandemic and have to catch up. 44% of those who plan to retire early cite spending more time with their family and loved ones. 34% said that they have come to realize that personal mission is more important than saving for retirement. 32% said they can afford it. 28% said they want to focus on priorities, add hobbies outside of work. 22% said they either got laid off and the work situation has changed due to remote work 
Another 22% said they've offered a buyout due to the pandemic. When asked what's more important, the study found that most adults, 60%, prioritize personal fulfillment, such as doing something that they care about each other's over salary and potential income over 40% of their careers. What people prioritize goes well beyond their bottom lines. The study was conducted with, by Harris Poll with 2,381 American adults age 18 and over who participated in this online survey back in February. And a little year-end planning stuff here for retirees, some things to throw out at you. You know, between rising prices and falling values, portfolios, 2022 has been a brutal year for most, <coughs> particularly retirees on fixed incomes, squeezed by inflation and concern about their dwindling nest eggs. But some well-timed year-end tax move, coupled with higher Social Security benefits beginning in January, could offer some future financial relief. The annual cost of living for Social Security for next year should be around 8.6%. That's going to be the largest increase since 1981. And the silver lining of recent stock losses is the potential for tax loss harvesting. Selling depreciated assets that have been held for more than one year in a non-retirement account can result in long-term capital losses that could offset equal amounts of taxable gains and up to $3,000 of ordinary income. Generally, we can't claim a loss on retirement accounts, which, is all, which already are receiving favorable tax treatment. The only time you can have a loss is when you receive a distribution that had been previously been taxed. So timing is key. Short-term capital gains on the sale of assets held one year or less are taxed at ordinary rates, while the, which can be up as high as 40.8% after you add in that 3.8% Medicare surtax to the top bracket of 37%. Long-term gains may be taxed as little as, four, as 0, 15, or 20%, depending on your income level. So determining the taxability of investment gains and losses involves a specific matching sequence. Net short-term gains net short and short-term losses. Net long-term gains and long-term losses. Net short-term and against long-term. Finally, taxpayers can deduct up to $3,000 in excess losses against ordinary income per year and carry over any remaining losses into future years. So this year, individuals with taxable income of $41,000 pay no capital gains taxes. Those with taxable income between $41,000 and $459,750 pay at a a 15% rate. And, and that's on long-term gains and qualified dividends. An individual taxable income over 459751 are subject to the maximum 20% capital, capital gains rate. Married couples filing this year pay no Social Security tax or no capital gains tax if their t- joint taxable income was 83000 or less. If their taxable income was between 83351 and 517200 they're going to pay a 15% rate and those over 417000 are going to pay the maximum 20% capital gains. Now, charitable contributions are also another opportunity to lower your taxable income, but it may come to some extra effort. Congress nearly doubled the standard deduction and capped the deduction for state and local taxes in the Tax and Jobs Cuts Act in 17. Fewer taxpayers are able to itemize their deductions, including charitable contributions. So in 22... Individual taxpayers and married couples filing separately have a standard deduction of $12,950. It's $19,400 for, for heads of household, 
married couples are 25 9 And if you're over the age of 65, you have an additional $1,400 a person or a total of $28,700. That is your standard deduction. One option is to bunch charitable donations into one year, take the standard deduction in an alternative year if eligible. For example, rather than making contributions this December, you might defer them until January. Then later next year in 23, make contributions again so that you can bunch those those deductions all in one year. Donor advice funds are also a, an option. It allows you to take the tax-deductible contribution in one year. You can decide which charities receive gifts at a later date. And then there's individual retirement accounts. For those who are over 70 and a half, they have the option of giving up to $100,000 a year directly from your IRA to a charity through what we call a Qualified Charitable Distribution, or QCD, with no income tax consequences. It can be used to satisfy some of your RMD if your age is, seven, is seven, over 72, and those 70 and a half and older can still take advantage of this unique strategy. However, gifts made to donor advice funds do not qualify. We right now do QCDs for over 90 different family units in our office. Pretty good size uh, number of our clients that do we do QCDs for. And then, of course, you also have to concern that when you QCD doesn't qualify as a charitable donation, excluded income, it reduces your individual tax liability. It can also help you possibly reduce or avoid future Medicare or high-income surcharges. And if you speak of Medicare, next year premiums for Medicare Part B, which covers outpatient services, are also expected to drop a little bit from $170.10 this year down to $164.90 next year. The income-related monthly adjustment amounts uh, paid by higher-income beneficiaries is also going to go down next year, and the income for each bracket will be adjusted upward. So we've already seen the new projected tables for the tax tables, pretty substantial increases because of that nine, that almost 9% cost of living increase that we've been experiencing. So that's uh, also a plus for us. Um, I'm going to take a jump over here. Talk a little bit about uh, gold. Gold is approaching a two-year low on strong dollar and ETF outflows. Spot gold headed for its third weekly decline as the dollar remains strong and outflows continued from bullion-backed exchange-traded funds. The Bloomberg dollar spot index has been supported by hawkish comments by the Federal Reserve officials. The yield on 10-year Treasury note climbed about 4.25% for the first time since 2007. As traders started to price in higher Fed speak uh, policy rate, non-interesting gold, bearing gold is nearing its lowest mark since 2020. Outflows from gold-backed ETFs are accelerating, a bearish signal for bullion. Holdings in the funds shrank almost 12 and a half tons just a week ago this last Wednesday, the biggest one-day decline since March of 21, and extending a plunge that's endured for almost six months. Federal Reserve's rate height, uh, tightening uh, going forward is weighing strongly on the markets due to its negative undercurrent. The technical picture seems to be worsening for gold day by day. Prices are now inclined, inclined to break below the $1,600 level. We're also seeing prices fall for other metals such as palladium, platinum, and silver. So kind of interesting to watch what's happening in some of those markets that uh, – we don't pay a lot of attention to, but I kind of do follow. I've been 
following gold and I get a lot of questions about it now for at least the last 40 years. And, and uh, you know, start seeing gold prices drop $100 an ounce in a week or week and a half's time does bring it to your attention. So when I see an update like that, I like to go ahead and share it with you. So anyways, this has been Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here in KGMI. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment. Want to win big? We're celebrating 50 years at Barron. Join us this Friday at our Ferndale showroom. Hi, I'm John Barron, owner of Barron Heating, AC, Electrical, and Plumbing. And I'm Brad Barron, fourth generation here at Barron. Since 1972, our customers have been the heart of our business. We'd like to invite you to join us Friday, November 4th, from 11 to 1 at our Ferndale showroom. Enjoy a bite to eat, cake, games, prizes, and more. Plus, get an extra entry for our big prize, 5,000 Barron bucks, towards any Barron service or installation. We love this community and want to celebrate with savings on solar, generators, plumbing, air duct cleaning, and more. Plus, save 20% on services like annual maintenance as a Silver Shield member. And five people will win 5,000 Baron Bucks towards any Baron service or installation. Book now through November 30th to be entered to win. From all of us at Baron, thank you. We look forward to serving you for years to come. Baron Heating, AC, Electrical, and Plumbing. Our mission, improving lives. No purchase necessary. Visit BaronHeating.com for details. My first lesson in hard work came from my dad. A union pipe fitter, he started his own business out of our garage when I was five years old. He didn't go to a four-year college, but was able to support his family because he worked hard and because he had a great education through an apprenticeship. I'm Joe Timmons, and I'm running for the legislature because I believe everyone deserves the opportunity to succeed in our community. Before students leave high school, they should have enough career and technical education to access living wage jobs without having to go to a four-year college. Costs are rising and families are struggling to afford food, gas, and housing. My own family's rent went up 35% last year, right here in Whatcom County. Healthcare costs are also way too high. That's why I want to work with both parties to lower costs for Washington families, especially those high prices for prescription drugs. I'm the only pro-choice candidate in this race, and I am proud to be endorsed by Planned Parenthood. Women, not politicians, should make their own healthcare decisions. I'm Joe Timmons, and I ask for your vote. Paid for by Vote Joe Timmons Democrat. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Woke Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue live and in studio today. And if you got questions for us, give us a call 360-733-1200. And we're also seeing that the majority of workers say they're behind on saving for retirement. Now, we talked a little bit about this a little bit ago, but maybe a little different slant on it. If you're an American worker and you're feeling behind in retirement, you're not alone, according to a new survey. More than half of working Americans, 55%, feel that they're behind on saving for their retirement, including more than a third, or 35%, who feel significantly behind and 20% who feel slightly behind, according to a survey released on Monday by Bankrate.com. Meanwhile, just a quarter of respondents stepped up to retirement contributions this year versus last year, while 16% actually cut their contributions. Just over a third, 34%, are contributing the same amount. A worrisome 24% did not save for retirement last year and are not contributing again this year. (coughs) <coughs> Only 20% of those surveyed said that they're on the right track, and just 15% think they're ahead of where they should be. This includes 8% who feel slightly ahead and 7% who feel significantly ahead. 
So getting back on track begins with utilizing tax-advantaged retirement programs, such as 401ks and IRAs, maximizing the free money that comes from your employer match, and increasing contributions as your pay raises. A lot of people, I suggest, try to increase at 1% every six months or so. You probably won't notice that difference. The auto escalation provision also in some workplace plans is a seamless way to automatically increase the amounts that you're putting away at regular intervals. <coughs> Inflation is overwhelmingly the reason why workers cited for failing to add to their accounts, more than two to one margin, and 54% over any other single purpose. Other reasons include stagnant or reduced income, 24%, new expenses, 24%, Debt repayment, 23 a desire to keep more cash on hand, 22%, and market volatility, 18%. <coughs> but people typically stop putting money into 401ks at times like this because it's painful to be adding money and seeing their accounts balances decline. But in reality, and I'm going to stress this, in reality, this is the most important time to continue to contribute because dollar cost averaging and thereby buying more shares per pay period than you normally would. So for the entire time that I've been in business, I've drawn kind of a wavy line across a sheet of paper, pointed out the highs and the lows. Well, during the highs, you're buying fewer shares, but in the lows, you're buying more shares. It's called dollar-cost averaging, and it really does work. So generally speaking, General Z workers, whose ages 18 to 25 are the only generation to be evenly split between feeling ahead to 31% and are behind 30% on tight savings. <coughs> Every other generation is overwhelmingly more likely to say that they're behind, and that likelihood increases with age, according to the survey. Finally, when it comes to variance among income groups, households earning 100000 or more are the only ones that have, that have fewer than half saying that they're behind on retirement. Those that are behind, 46%, still outnumber those that are ahead by 23%, or a 2.2 to 1 margin. And all the priorities when it comes to retirement savings, it's really hard for most of workers to find extra money each year. We start saving for retirement, increase their savings rate. But with planning, a little sacrifice, and focus on long-term success, <coughs> most employees can find room in their budget to save a little more each year if they need to. Their future uh, selves will thank them. Really important to take advantage of that over a period of time. <coughs> Boy, fighting this bad today. Sorry. <coughs> okay. Well, some interesting report coming out says we're not in a recession. Everyone assuming that the obvious or will be reality. Well, like we are in a recession, growth is slowing, inflation is through the roof, not coming down. The Fed will keep hiking, job loss will come, spending will slow, et cetera, et cetera. But what if these things turn out not to be the case? <coughs> what if we're not yet in a recession? We all know GDP reports get adjusted for years after the first reported. What if business investments stay strong? What if you see slower losses from retail sales than expected? What if spending on services remains solid or even grows? <coughs> what if home building slows less than expected? What if government purchases more goods and services than expected? What if we expect export more than expected? Or we import less than expected? 
What if inventory build is different than expected? What if inflation reports are overestimating the real inflation? Owner-equivalent rent, or OER, is a huge component of inflation. (coughs) Yet this data lags for eight months. In other words, the inflation level today is reflective of where housing prices were in February, with a 30-year mortgage rate now hovering around 7%. Does anyone think the prices today are reflective of February? To be clear, I'm not suggesting that we're not in a recession. I'm not suggesting inflation is not high. I'm suggesting there's a chance that everything being suggested is not a foregone conclusion. I'm suggesting that what may seem obvious now could in fact turn out to be wrong or some version of less right. So embedded in my suggestion is the suggestion that you won't know until you know. And I'm implicitly suggesting that when you do know, you'll say some version of, man, I should have. I'm explicitly suggesting that you can only guess. And the stock market is defeated only when defined by a certain period of time. So know, know what the money is for and when it's needed. You don't need the money now or, say, 18 to 24 months. Build and hold your portfolio that you want to have in recovery rather than build the portfolio you wish you had back in January. Because, that, that, because what if some of the things that you think are absolutely actually wrong turn out don't turn out to be wrong? Ask yourself what you think would happen to the market if GDP is revised upward or inflation comes down way faster than you thought as the monetary stimulus bleeds off or suddenly the Fed backs off its current plan. Surprise to common thoughts and assumptions can materialize, so be in the right portfolio for you and make yourself financially unbreakable. Keep looking forward. Don't react to what you see happening in the short term. I think you'll find that generally... You're going to make a mistake if you try to do that. I uh, saw an interesting report also come out, just came out last night that I saw that the uh, test scores shows that Washington public schools are now below average in ed- educating students in math and English. On Monday, the National Assessment of Education Progress, or NAEP, known as the Nation's Report Card, announced results for the 22 learning tests. Since 1990, Washington State schools have always scored above the national average in these tests, but no longer. Washington public schools just posted their lowest student learning scores in the state's history, according to the testing. The Washington public schools educated fourth graders at the lowest level ever in math and reading. Public schools educated eighth graders at the lowest level ever in math and reading. Other assessments show similar failures. The state Smarter Balance Assessment shows public schools failed to educate 62% of students in math and failed to educate 49% in English. The American College Test, or ACT, shows the lowest performance ever by Washington public schools in educating students. State education leaders appear to be unaware of how poorly they're doing. State Superintendent Chris, School Superintendent Chris Reichdahl recently announced that he wants to spend another $6.56 billion, or 20% more, to spend on school system, even as student enrollment is falling. He says he wants to give out most of this money as pay raises for public employees. Only about half the school district employees are teachers. His proposal includes no direct funding and no to help children and families make up for their learning losses. So let's consider this funding request in context. A caring legislature would recognize that adults in the school system were were amply protected during COVID, 
receiving full pay and benefits during nearly two years of school shutdowns. Meanwhile, no education funding went, fa- went, went to families to access learning resources. Today, Washington Public Schools have on hand about $1.6 billion in unspent federal COVID money. That's enough to provide every family about $1,500 to pay for tutoring, extra lessons, or other resources without touching a penny of existing district budgets. The contrast in approaches was, pra- was dramatically illustrated in an exchange between Senate candidates Patty Murray and Tiffany Smiley during their debate. Senator Murray said she is so concerned about schools being shut down that the she put federal dollars into the school programs and tutoring, but we have more work to do. And Smiley said, our children are set back terribly by the closed schools, their test scores are plummeting, childhood, childhood anxiety is on the rise, ask any parent. Our children are suffering. She cited school policies that deliver results in 32 states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, which show allow parents to access school, public school dollars to pay for costs of private tutoring and private tuition. One approach calls for doing the same thing, uh, pouring more money into school districts and expecting a different result. The alternative calls for giving students wide uh, access to better, whether the public's local public school, an alternative school, private tutoring, online courses, or some combination. In other words, meeting child learning needs is a flexible way, regardless of how parent choices might have affected budgets and bureaucracies. The evidence shows that funding fresh approaches based on choice is going to be far more effective than slotting another $6 billion to government agencies. Other states are finding family engagement and the choice is best way to deliver academic achievement and better lifetime prospects for school children. If state leaders would open up their minds, we can too. Really serious problem out there as far as the testing level and what we're seeing as far as what students are doing, where they're at, what they're learning, what they're able to do, what tests they're able to take, what scores they're getting. It's a concern I have because I've got kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, and I think it's really important when we sit out there. You know, I often look back at myself and back in those days, and I hear talk all the time on radio about more tech schools and more uh, training. And I remember how I took home ec in high school. I know how to sew a button and uh, sew a button back on my clothes with a needle and thread. Or if you go out there and you work in the wood shop and you know how to do things with your hands, those are things that we're lacking today in our schools. And so I think it's really important that schools get back to some of those basics. Sounds like we're out of time. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here in KGMI. Don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. If you got questions for us, give us a call, 360-733-1200. Thanks, and have a great week. in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. 
To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor.